as the song says, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, yeah? And I am excited that in the next seven days, we not only get to open our Bibles together today, and as I'm saying that, I want to invite you to have your Bible open at Philippians chapter 2, if you would. But not only do we get to open our Bibles and think together about Jesus today, but then next Saturday on Christmas Eve, we'll be here uh, for a Christmas Eve service along with our brothers and sisters from our host congregation of Advent. And then next Sunday morning... Someone else will say this later in the service, but this is like your bonus warning slash reminder. We're not going to be here next Sunday afternoon. So if you come here next Sunday afternoon, you're going to be by yourself out in the cold and it will not be a happy Christmas, okay? But next Sunday morning, we will get to worship Jesus together here at 1030 along with our brothers and sisters from the Advent congregation. And I'm looking forward to these opportunities to worship Jesus along with you this week. One of the um, wonderful transgenerational activities of the Christmas season is the activity of putting together puzzles. So last Christmas we had puzzles uh, out on tables in our household. And one of the great things is that my five-year-old can come and look for a piece of a puzzle to, uh, to click in with the rest of the picture. And my father-in-law in his 80s and wrestling with dementia can walk along and find a piece of a puzzle and click it in, lock it in along with the rest of the picture. And all of us can walk by and participate in that. I suppose I'm right in between my five-year-old and my 80-something-year-old father-in-law. And I, too, enjoy walking over and finding a little piece of a puzzle and clicking it in one piece at a time as a picture forms in front of you on the table. And as we're studying Philippians chapter 2, slowly, one piece at a time, a couple lines at a time, or a couple words at a time in this season leading up to Christmas, what's happening week by week is we're kind of finding puzzle pieces from God himself that click together and give us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what Christmas is all about. In fact, as we put these pieces of the puzzle together, as we think about what Philippians 2 is telling us a few lines at a time, we not only get kind of a puzzle that reveals a picture of a nativity scene in which there is a cave or a stable and angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and a newborn baby, But it's almost as if as we click the pieces of the puzzle together, Philippians 2 gives us kind of a 3D image. A 3D image to see more than first meets the eye in the Christmas story. As we said last week, borrowing those words from the Chronicles of Narnia in the mouth of Queen Lucy in the last battle, In our world, too, a stable once held something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And as we put the pieces of the puzzle together here in Philippians chapter 2, what we see 
is something bigger than our whole world. What we see is more and more clearly, we see Jesus Christ, the Lord. And today I want to lead us in thinking most specifically about these last few words at the end of verse 7. Verse 6 told us that Jesus Christ was in the form of God or the very nature of God. And yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then verse 7 begins to tell us that Jesus Christ emptied himself. How? By taking the form or the very nature of a servant... And then I want to lead us today in considering these words especially, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, being born in the likeness of a human. And now as we consider this together, I want to lead us in considering a few of the puzzle pieces that need to snap together in order for us to understand what it means that Jesus was born in the likeness of men, or born in the likeness of a human. And the first puzzle piece that we need to snap into place in order to understand the end of Philippians 2.7 is this. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is truly God. He's truly God. We looked at this last week, but John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, makes the point very clearly. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, in order to see what Philippians 2 is showing us about Jesus... We need to understand this idea that Jesus Christ was in very nature God's. He eternally existed as the Son of God. He always was and still is and always will be nothing less than truly God. Which is to say... That if we have ideas about Jesus that say Jesus was only a great teacher or only a great prophet or only an inspiring leader and yet something less than God himself, then we have missed the portrait of Jesus Christ that is presented to us in the Bible. This, by the way, is how most Americans view Jesus. A survey was sent around a few years ago asking people in America, did the Son of God exist before Jesus Christ was born to Mary? 
And most Americans answered that question by saying no. Most Americans believe that Jesus Christ was some sort of great teacher or great prophet, some sort of great and inspiring leader, and yet not the eternal Son of God. This is the majority view in the country that we live in. And this is essentially, uh, this is essentially the view of Jesus Christ that our Muslim neighbors have. Most Americans are surprised to sit down and talk with a Muslim person about Jesus and realize that our Muslim neighbors have actually a very high view of Jesus. They respect and appreciate Jesus quite a bit. In fact, as I began to get involved with World Relief a number of years ago, and as I began to mentor students who had moved to the United States from the Middle East, and as I got to know some Muslim students and talk with them about Jesus, I was surprised that, that, these, that these Muslim teenagers had a higher view of Jesus than most of my American neighbors did. And yet, most Americans and our Muslim neighbors, while they, may have, while they may speak very highly of Jesus as a teacher or a prophet or an inspiring leader, they do not see him as God. And what is the result if we say that Jesus was a great human being and not God? The result is this, you may speak very highly of Jesus, but you will not end up worshiping him. You will not end up worshiping him as Christ the Lord. And yet here is what Philippians 2 and the New Testament tells us about Jesus. He was not simply a great teacher or a great prophet or an inspiring leader. He was in very nature God. This is the first piece of the puzzle that we need to kind of lock into place. We need to recognize that Jesus is truly God. A second piece of the puzzle that we need to lock into place in order to understand what the New Testament is telling us about Jesus is that we also need to understand that he is truly human. This is the issue that Philippians chapter 2 is moving toward. Well, Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, eternally existed as God. At a certain point in time, he added a human nature. That's what Philippians 2 is leading us toward. He emptied himself. How? By taking the form or the very nature of a servant. How did he empty himself? By taking on the form of a servant? By being born. I mean, this is kind of the most fundamentally human experience there is, I suppose. As far as experiences go. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. This parallels what John chapter 1 says about Jesus. 
After John chapter 1 tells us that he was in the beginning with God and that he was God, John chapter 1 goes on to say, of speaking of Jesus as the Word, it says in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son of God who existed forever as God took on flesh. I might encourage you for a moment without wounding yourself just to feel your skin for a moment. This is part of what makes us who we are as human beings. And in order to kind of signify to what extent Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became one of us, the New Testament often speaks of His flesh. Which is to say that Jesus did not simply come and put on a human costume. He wasn't just playing dress up. This isn't a Halloween story about how God put on a costume and knocked on doors and went back home to go back to who he really was. He took on flesh. The full experience of humanity from before he was born in the womb to being born, to growing up as a child, to living as a human being. With all of the limitations and hormones and emotions that go with it. Jesus Christ became flesh. In fact, the Apostle John makes this a litmus test of the Christian faith. Perhaps some of our high school students are very familiar right now with how litmus tests work from chemistry class. You take this little strip and you dip it in a certain substance or compound and you pull it back out and either it changes colors or it doesn't, right? The Apostle John takes this as sort of a litmus test to say, is this a true Christian faith? Here's how you can test it. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is from God. And in fact, the Apostle John will go a step further than that. And suggest that anybody who denies that Jesus Christ has truly come in the flesh. Is participating in the spirit of anti-Christ. Not just slightly wrong ideas but being opposed to the Christ himself. This is the idea that the early church wrestled with and found marvelous. One of the church fathers named Hilary of Poitiers puts it like this. He did not lose what he was, but began to be what he was not. He was... And is and always will be God. But at a certain point in time, he began to be something that previously he was not. The eternal son of God 
became truly human, one of us. And this is the second puzzle piece. The first, he is truly God. The second puzzle piece that we snap into place, he's truly human. And the third puzzle piece that we snap into place in order to understand the New Testament's portrait of Jesus is this, that he is still one person. There is still one and only one Jesus Christ. Not two different people pretending or kind of swapping out places over time. So how do we put these puzzle pieces together? These different descriptions of Jesus Christ as one person and yet having a divine nature, being truly God, and having a human nature, it's kind of like one of those moments when you're putting a puzzle together on the table and you say, I know these three pieces are supposed to go together, but I need to spin them around the right way first. And as Christians through the years have looked at these three puzzle pieces and tried to fit them together, the church has finally landed on this wonderful teaching. This is the glorious mystery revealed to us in Philippians chapter 2 and throughout the New Testament. This is the glorious mystery of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, truly God and truly human. He is the eternal Son of God who at a certain time was born as a human. He's not truly human, but not really God, which might lead us to speak highly of Jesus and yet not worship Him. But at the same time, He is not truly God and only a pretend human being. And you know what would happen if we find ourselves believing that He is truly God and yet only pretending to be a human being? What happens is we don't end up following and obeying Him as our example. Because we say, sure, it would be easy for God to love His enemies, but I'm only human. If we believe that Jesus is truly God and not truly human, we end up living under this weight of anxiety and worry and fear. Why? Because we're still looking for a human being to save us. But this is the mystery, the glorious mystery of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God who at a certain point in time was born. Which is why Christians for hundreds of years have recited these words in humble adoration of Jesus Christ. These words aren't perfect and they're not from the Bible. But these words are reliable. 
and time-tested by God's people who have said across the generations that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, like light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. This is the glorious mystery. Jesus Christ One person with two natures. Truly God and truly human. The eternal Son of God who at a certain time was born. Fully human. Truly human. And what does that mean for us? In some ways, some of these points will echo what we said last week, but that's okay. As we take our time slowly walking through these beautiful verses of Scripture, it's worth not rushing ahead and speeding on past these absolutely central truths of the Christian faith. What does it mean for us that Jesus Christ is truly human? Well, for one thing, it means that we can trust Him as our representative. I read something once by a theologian named Michael Kruger who helped me see the difference between Jesus and all of our superheroes in American culture. He explained that Jesus Christ does not save the world the way that Superman saves the world. You know how Superman works, right? On most days of the week, Superman is just Clark Kent. He's just a normal-looking, mild-mannered reporter. And yet at some point in every storyline about Superman, Superman will unbutton his shirt and reveal his true identity underneath his outward costume, and he will save the world. But here's the thing about Superman. He only looked like an ordinary human. He did walk and talk and eat food like Lois Lane and other ordinary humans. But in reality, he was not human at all. He was an alien being from the planet Krypton. His humanity was only an illusion. And in the universe of DC Comics, Superman can save the world precisely and specifically because he is not a human like us. But this is the sense in which Jesus Christ stands apart from all of our American superheroes. In the real world... 
Jesus Christ can rescue us. In the real world, Jesus Christ can save the world precisely and only because he is a human like us. If I can speak for a moment to those who love mathematics or logic. In the real world, Jesus Christ can save us if and only if he is a true human. Jesus Christ is truly human. And we can trust him as our true representative who fully understands what it's like to be human. You think of many of the hard, difficult, painful, challenging aspects of being human. Jesus experienced them. He was tempted by the enemy himself. He was sorrowful. Some of you know what it's like to cry a lot. Jesus experienced anger. He experienced rejection. Even betrayal. He lamented and cried out in desperation to God. He wept at a funeral. And therefore Jesus as our and therefore we can trust Jesus as our true representative who totally understands what it's like to be human. Pain, sorrow, hormones, emotions and all. Therefore there are moments when in our struggles We look to heaven and we cry out, you don't know how hard this is. But what do we see when we look toward heaven and say, you don't know how hard this is? We don't see uncaring eyes looking back at us saying, just try harder. We see the compassionate face of Jesus Christ who says, I know. I also have suffered while being tempted. We can trust Jesus as our representative who understands what it's like. Even more, we can trust Jesus as our representative who is qualified to represent us before God. Listen, a truly human representative is precisely what we have needed as far back as Genesis chapter 3. In the opening pages of the Bible, we read about how God created humanity in a world that was very good. And then we read about how humanity turned away from God in rebellion. Bringing God's judgment of death as a result of sin. 
unleashing all kinds of darkness and evil in our world. But what was God's glimmer of hope that he gave to Adam and Eve in that first generation of fallen humanity? I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, going back to Genesis chapter 3, as human beings in God's story of redemption, our hope hinges on a truly human hero. And as we continue on through the story of redemption, we're not only looking for a son of Eve who can rescue us and represent us. We're looking for a son of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then we're looking for a son of great King David. And then we're listening to the hope of the prophets Who say things like this, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, as we read through the pages of the Bible from Genesis to 1 Samuel to Isaiah to Micah and on through the prophets, we are looking for a human redeemer, a son of Eve, a son of Abraham, a son of David, a son of man. And then the New Testament shows us this good news. Jesus Christ is that son of Eve, that son of Abraham, that son of David, that son of man who we have been looking for and longing for. That one on whom all our hopes of redemption from sin and death rest. Romans chapter 5 verse 17, for example, tells us, If because of one man's trespass, speaking of the trespass of Adam, if because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The New Testament shows us over and over again that we can trust Jesus Christ as our representative. It is good news that Jesus Christ, who forever existed as God's Son, was born in the likeness of men. That He truly was one of us. It is good news because it means we can trust Him as our representative. And the weight of rescuing ourselves no longer rests on our shoulders. It rests on Him who has already accomplished it for us. And therefore, we can draw near to God today 
Therefore, you can draw near to God today despite your sin, despite your hardship, despite the darkness, despite the pain, despite the weight of death and darkness and all that is wrong with this world. You can draw near to the throne of grace today. Not on the basis of who you are and how well you've done it, but on the basis of who he is. And how much our hero, Jesus Christ, has accomplished on our behalf. Because Jesus Christ is truly human, we can trust Him as our true representative. A second thing that this means for us, because Jesus Christ is truly human, we can follow Him as our true example. There's a pastoral point that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, is getting at throughout Philippians chapter 2. We're reading these words which come as kind of a hymn, probably a hymn that either Paul wrote or a hymn that was already being sung by the early church. That hymn begins, it seems, in verse 6. But before we get to that hymn in verse 6... There is a pastoral point that the author of the book of Philippians, the author of the letter to the church in Philippi, there's a pastoral point that he's making. And what is that pastoral point? The pastoral point begins there in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We read that, and isn't there something in your heart that says, wouldn't the world be a better place if humanity worked like that? Wouldn't Facebook be a better place if humanity worked like that? Wouldn't our conversations with neighbors in our nation who we view as different than us, wouldn't our conversations with them be different if humanity worked like that? Wouldn't our holiday meals be better with family members if we approached our holiday meals like that, looking not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others? Wouldn't life at home with little kids and hardships of marriage and struggles between roommates and so on and so forth, wouldn't life at home be better if we worked like that? And yet the main thing that this letter is aiming at is not getting the world to work like that, but getting the church to work like that. Because one of the sad facts of life is that very often the church doesn't look like this. The church of Jesus Christ isn't characterized by people who look around at their brothers and sisters in the father's family saying, I'm not only going to look out for my interests, I'm going to look out for her interests too. 
I'm not only going to look out for my interests, I'm going to look out for their interests also. And yet, this is the pastoral point that this passage is after, is calling us, especially in the context of Jesus' church, to live like this, looking out not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we say, that sounds challenging. Like, it sounds really cool when it's like, I want everybody else to look out for my interests. But then when it comes to me looking out for other people's interests, that sounds challenging to do. It sounds like there might be times when that's going to feel sacrificial, when that's going to feel like giving up things that I care about in order to care about others. But this is when we need to pay attention to what Philippians chapter 2 is saying to us. It's telling us that if we, by faith, belong to Jesus Christ, then we have His mind in us. We have His Spirit at work among us. And we have this wonderful promise from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, even our following of Jesus is transformed when we realize that he was truly human. The humanity of Jesus gives us this hope. This courage, this strength of knowing that because he suffered when tempted, as a real human like us, he's able to actually help us through the process of following him as well. Now, of course, I'm not talking about following him perfectly without fail. I make mistakes in following him. I've been guilty of selfishness toward other brothers and sisters in this church family. I've been guilty of selfishness toward people in my own household. I need their forgiveness, and I need God's forgiveness like you do as well. I'm not talking about perfect obedience or perfectly following Jesus, but what Philippians 2 invites us into is it invites us into this journey as people who have the mind and the spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling among us into this journey of genuinely following His example. This is exactly what Peter says about this issue. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you actually might follow in His steps. You see, sometimes as churchgoers, we, we get it, the test right. Is Jesus truly God? Yes. And that's why we sing songs about Him. But do you realize it's possible to sing songs about the deity of Jesus and yet miss the humanity in, of Jesus in such a way that when it comes to the call to follow in His example of loving others, 
and laying down ourselves and laying down our ego and laying down our pride and laying down our selfishness in order to seek their benefit instead of my own. That's not just a thing where we say, sure, that was easy for Jesus, but I'm just human. As we believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who was born like us. It teaches us that this call to follow him is a call that we are genuinely called into. Genuinely making sacrifices, genuinely laying down our lives, genuinely seeking not only my own interests, but also the interests of others. As we think about this issue of seeking the interests of others or even seeking the interests of other groups. I want to pause for just a second and reflect on um, reflect on this thing that I think God is doing with our church family right now. Uh, It's no secret there's this kind of exciting possibility that our congregation And the Advent Christian congregation, who is our host here, who provides this space, there's the possibility that our two congregations might become one congregation together. And I've tried to emphasize as I've communicated that over time, that's not just a matter of this is the way that our congregation can get a building. This is a matter of two congregations becoming one. The more exciting thing than the bricks is the people who are made in God's image. But if the Lord keeps leading in this direction and if in the coming months our two congregations become one congregation, what's going to happen? Well, for one thing, there are going to be moments when we're going to have to think not just about what's in my interest or what's in my group's interest, We're going to have to think what's in the interest of others. And sometimes that might feel a little bit sacrificial. Sometimes it might feel like moving slowly. Sometimes it might feel like taking extra time to explain things or making extra time for other people. But I want to suggest to us that this is a priority looking out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a priority, not because it's something that I think will strategically help us through a leadership initiative. It's a priority because this is the way of Jesus. It's a priority because if we're following him, then this is what following him means. Looking out not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. Because Jesus Christ is truly human, we can trust him as our true representative. We can follow him as our true example. And thirdly, we can exalt him as our true Lord. Of course, this is where Philippians chapter 2 is leading us. We'll land at the end of these verses on New Year's Day morning. And we will consider these glorious words 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Which invites us as well to exalt him as our true Lord and King. But even as we follow him. And even as we trust him. As we follow him as our example. As we trust him as our representative. We do all of this while we continue exalting him as our Lord. So many of our Christmas hymns, our Christmas carols, lead us right down this path. And yet we can listen along in our own merry holiday way without even hearing what the Christmas carols are calling us to. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him praise, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring Him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant King to own Him. The King of kings, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone Him. Because he is truly human, we exalt him as our Lord. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come, adore on bended knee Christ the Lord. The one who eternally existed as God. And yet at a certain time was born truly as a human. Come adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn King. And so brothers and sisters, throughout this week, this is my prayer for us. In fact, beyond this week, this is my prayer for us. This isn't just a strategy for enjoying the Christmas season. This is a strategy for living as disciples of Jesus Christ. Who eternally existed as the Son of God. And yet did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, poured himself out, made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. As we consider this wondrous truth. As we consider this puzzle portrait that the New Testament lies in front of us. As we consider the glory that is inside the stable. Let's trust Jesus as our true representative. Let's follow him in lives of love because he is our true example. And let's come and adore on bended knee, exalting him as the true Lord of all. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.